You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, good morning, and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. It's Sunday, the 2nd of October, 2022. The time is two minutes past ten, and you're listening live to Weekend World. On Weekend World, we go behind the week's news and uh, look in detail at some of the uh, things that have been happening and uh, look at them from an Islamic perspective. And I'm very lucky to be joined uh, today by Dr. Abdullah Aleem. Uh, assalamu alaikum, Dr. Aleem. Thank you for joining us on Weekend World. You're welcome, Thank you for inviting me. So as uh, as usual, we're going to look at things that are happening around the world, but um, a little bit closer to home to start with, uh, to give us some perspective on things. But I guess a lot of countries are in the are in the same position. Over the last few months, the UK economic situation seems to have gone from from bad to worse. And the last uh, two weeks, without uh, putting too much of a political spin on it, have has been one of economic carnage. I think is probably the right word. Uh, the challenges are, are are not small. Here in the UK, we have seen a rise in the use of food banks. We have seen uh, food and energy poverty uh, uh, getting worse and worse. We have seen economic inequality rising as well. And uh, similar challenges uh, in other countries around around the world. Uh, Dr. Lim, the, the area that I'd like to focus on first of all um, and in your role as someone who has looked at international development in a in a professional capacity, I think it would be a, an inter- interesting point to to discuss. Is that um, in many respects the the importance of um, economic um, the economic health of a country is is very closely tied to uh, two very important aspects. One one is an investment in the the lives of of children very early on, especially below the age of five. And the second is an investment in, in health. And there's the old adage, if we start with the health question, there's the old adage that health is wealth. And on a, on a personal level, for the individual, obviously this becomes critically true because an individual who can't work can't earn money. Um, an individual who's healthy can be economically productive and earn money for themselves and for their family. Um, but the same is certainly str- true on a on a, a community level and on a national level as well. Uh, and obviously, this becomes a challenge where we can't invest in health infrastructure and where health infrastructures, hospitals, um, doctor services, uh, nurses, um, the, these can't be afforded, and and people struggle to be able to access health, and and the whole nation falls into into a state of being generally uh, less healthy than they were. Um, your your thoughts on this first of all, and where I'm thinking about the UK specifically, because we've seen a, a sort of long drain on the back of COVID of the of the healthcare system, um, and continuing um, complaints, uh, both from doctors, nurses, and from patients about the fact that the healthcare system is is on its knees. Um, it's become more and more difficult for people to see their GP and to get access to hospital care. Long waiting lists. Uh, have have become an unfortunate reality, um, and what that might mean from an e- economic point of view for the country as well. Thank you, um, Dr. Ahmad. That's a very um, great great introduction to start with. Um, first of all, let me just start with the fact that um, uh, there is a deeper problem with uh, the uh, political and social systems that we are talking about because mm. we can't really link everything to economic productivity. 
Yeah. And uh, and of course, you know, uh, human fulfillment uh, is much more multidimensional than just being productive member of the society and being able to contribute economically to the GDP. Uh, it's it's a it's a larger struggle of meaning and purposefulness. Uh, so yes, yeah, so but be that as as it may, uh, we know that uh, the current world is ruled. Uh, Policy makers are are economists, and they are the ones who finally decide where the money will go. So we have to make sense to the economists, and uh, one of the one of the most interesting arguments over the last couple of decades, and uh, the paper by Heckman, and uh, this recent paper that has just come out of 200 countries, a uh, meta database of 200 countries, has consistently shown that uh, you know early childhood investments in health and education are really critical to uh, the overall economic productivity and progress of society in general. Um, and there is really no doubt about it. There is absolutely no dispute about it. Mm. Um, so, uh, and, and I've been working in this area for almost uh, two decades, and I've met uh, government officials and high-level policymakers. And when you talk to them, it it does make imminent sense to them when you talk about the numbers. Uh, you talk about the percentage of economic productivity that will go up, uh, how much it will add to the GDP. You know, all the concrete and mathematical numbers that you can throw at them. Um, but one of the one of the most challenging parts of these conversations has been um, the time or the policy horizon and the and and policy process. So first, let me just come to policy horizon, the time uh, that is required to actually institute and implement such investment uh, policies, uh, both for education and health. It actually must. Be done over two to three decades. Mm. So the return in education is over 25 years. Uh, it has been complete. It has been very uh, now shown indisputably that if a policy uh, is held consistently for over 25 years, you can actually get high level of gain on early childhood education uh, with one dollar of investment returning 28 dollars over the individual's productive life, basically. Mm. So, uh, so numbers really make a lot of sense. The problem, the challenge is who will have a 25-year policy horizon, uh, and usually because the uh, government uh, cycles are about five years of uh, election year, election cycle, you usually get policymakers who are short-sighted and would like to make uh, urgent gains for their constituencies within five years. So, a very small number of politicians will be actually interested in instituting a policy that could be carried over 25 years. Unless you have a very strong bipartisan social contract between the political parties and the people, that these policies, which are core social welfare policies, will remain in place no matter what party gets into the government, and that has been pretty difficult in many parts of the world. Uh, exceptions have been uh, Kerala State in India, uh, Sri Lanka uh, in 60s and 70s, and several other states where you have had uh, long, also to a certain extent, authoritarian governments. Now, UK has been an exception in the sense that UK was to start with a municipal nation state where the right to local governance was very highly respected. Mm. You had very high level of representation in policy making by all segments of the society, um, and also the uh, uh, the so the policy process was very robust. And you or you already know that Beveridge uh, laid down the foundations of the NHS, and UK was held as uh, as a poor. Uh, Social welfare state model in terms of health, as opposed to Bismarck, which started this uh, pensions and social insurance in Germany. 
So Bismarck and Beveridge are essentially considered sort of fathers of the modern nation state, the the, uh, the laying of the modern nation state. But uh, of more recently, what the kind of things that you're talking about and this crisis that we have had uh, in uh, uh, UK and in fact also in the US, uh, the US is now in fact the uh, the only country that stands out for uh, life expectancy going down and the worst health outcomes for the largest per capita GDP they spend on health. Mm. So it's uh, sort of started in the U.S. Uh, way back and now we know that we are now looking at, in fact, irreversible losses in, in uh, life expectancy in the U.S. I suspect the U.K. might also be going through the same thing, but I think partly uh, the responsibility uh, gain has been and I think we have talked about this for a while now, that uh, deregulation and some of the new liberal economic policies that were instituted in 80s and 90s in the UK also uh, are partly responsible for the reversal of the social gains that have that were made. So there was a belief that uh, one could actually hand over a lot more control and autonomy for private sector to control policy making and also influence policy making and for them to improve their profits. So that money was actually, by, by in fact, conscious policy process, money was diverted to more uh, the, the profit-making uh, industry and health did become actually a very high level of profit-making industry rather than mainly a social welfare concept. And I think that's been continuously happening in the UK where you've had uh, sort of uh, decrease in NHS funding. And that, I think, has led to what you're talking about, uh, the, the current acute crisis in terms of what is happening to the health sector provision and health service provision to UK citizens. So I think these are sort of deep-rooted economic uh, policies and decisions that have been made over the last two, three decades and now sort of coming to a fruition. Um, and certainly COVID laid bare some of the, you know, some of the uh, fragility that had already started happening in these systems, uh, so it accelerated because of that, and now we are seeing the the, the the real manifestations of what happened over the last three decades. In fact, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Leem, and, and quite a lot to unpack there. I guess I would start again if I think about the example of the UK compared to um, a country in the in the so-called developing world and whether that would be a country in um, sub-Saharan Africa or or Southeast Asia, you spoke about the fact that you get this multiplier effect for investment in in health or investment in uh, health and education of of young children. And that multiplier can be in various quoted figures depending on on what the intervention is, somewhere between 4 and 28 times. So for every dollar invested, you you get a significant economic payback for, for, for the nation in terms of productivity. Here in the UK, you, we, we might argue that we've reached that part of the curve where your investment yields less in terms of, say, for instance, health. So for every dollar or pound invested, you would just about get your money back or maybe a little bit more. Um, however, with the with the state of the healthcare system as it is at the moment and the health of the nation being significantly affected to the point where people are now unable to work because of chronic illness that they are unable to to get good care for that directly impacts health uh, that directly impacts your 
um, economic situation for the for the country, and therefore we are now in that part of the um, cycle where, as you as you said, uh, the the situation in the in the UK is similar to what it might be in in a developing country or in an in an emerging market, as they as they say, from an economic perspective. Um, and and that's that's the situation that, that um, the governance in in the UK has, uh, in a sense, allowed to happen through through lack of investment or lack of in- ongoing investment in the in the healthcare system in the healthcare infrastructure. Um, we we certainly don't want to be at a point where, as you say, in terms of investment, the US has a very poor return on its investment in healthcare, mainly because a lot of that healthcare is profit-driven and the money goes into the pockets of private companies rather than uh, into providing good healthcare on a, on a national level. Um, what would you see, and so if I come to a question now on this, what would you see as the main uh, push or, or, or change in policy that would reverse this situation for the UK or, or help to promote it for another country uh, where where their healthcare infrastructure is not as good? I know that's quite a broad question, but uh, if we take the UK example specifically, uh, w- what do you think needs to happen uh, if you were being asked the question by a, by a government minister? Uh, what do you think needs to happen here in the UK in order to reverse this trend and to help the healthcare um, system to get back on its feet and, and economic uh, activity to improve? Well, that's a, that's a very tough question to answer in, in one go. I think that uh, uh, you have to look at uh, where the uh, malaise really, really lies. And I think mm. that starts uh, in late 80s um, and 90s where there was a discussion about the fact that uh, public sector is very inefficient in, in, uh, in providing uh, services to, to the population. Mm. So there was an assumption that private sector, because of its efficiencies and cost effectiveness, is rather better in terms of being able to provide uh, public services. And there was a trend that started around that time where uh, some of the essential public services were being turned over to private sector. Uh, a very stark example of this is actually uh, the prison industry in the U.S., where um, you know people are incarcerated and are now uh, living in privatized jails, which are uh, which are uh, extremely cruel in how they treat uh, prisoners. So governments have been handing over public services to private sector for actually for a while, and that trend has continued unabatedly because as the private sector got more and more powerful and was able to employ um, think tanks and lobbies to uh, to influence the uh, public legislature. The policies have gradually bent towards the profit-making sector rather than the public sector. Mm. So, um, so we see the examples in the northern Scandinavian countries where you have had still a very powerful uh, public sector still providing services to people. So. Usually, it is now. Uh, now it is said that one of the only ways, in fact, to reverse the current situation would be to go back and start um, nationalizing some of the privatized services. Now, that's a, a sort of a radical argument because, of course, we have to go on case by case basis on what is the most effective way to provide services. But in general, uh, reversing the trend of privatization would have to be 
considered very seriously in terms of what is a good public, what is a public good, and what the state should be responsible for, and how the state should be able to effectively provide those services at a, a, at a minimum cost, where it doesn't look irresponsible to the people in terms of their tax dollars being wasted. And I think this has to do generally uh, in terms of uh, in terms of decay in public sector and the standard of uh, political debate and policy process that has uh, fallen into a decline over the last 20, 30 years because the best of your brains were actually uh, uh, sort of uh, snatched away by private sector who became very influential and used their uh, intelligence economic prowess to actually increase the influence of private sector over the policy process. Uh, so what we have had is almost the same situation as in uh, in parts of the world where religion is first taken over by some of the people who, uh, because intelligent people abandon religion and then they are ruled over by those clerics who don't accomplish much, haven't gone to school and just get religious training and begin to actually uh, rule over the uh, pub- common public. Mm-hmm. So once brain drain happens in one part of the sector uh, and another sector gains at the expense of it, you actually have uh, what I call a decline in both the quality of the policy process, the participation in the policy process, and the and the uh, and the gains or the time horizons that people think about, uh, because they are competing against very powerful forces that uh, oblige them to make short-sighted policies that could only help people in the short term. And we've already said that uh, public goods like health and education uh, are goods you have to invest in for over two, three decades to be able to make the kind of gains that you're talking about, which is not possible when you're competing with high profits and margins that the private sector can make over the short term. So I think that these are, this is a very involved debate, and uh, it, it's not a very simple, straightforward answer, but I do think that uh, there would be, there, need to be, there needs to be a reversal of the privatization trend uh, and back to some sectors completely being taken over by public sector to be able to deliver the services to people at low cost. Thank you for that, Dr. Aleem. And obviously that goes very much against the grain of uh, almost an ideal ideology of capitalism being the, and market forces being the answer to uh, a lot of the economic problems uh, that that face uh, nation states. And, and obviously the argument would be that the UK and the US have done very, very well off the off the back of this ca- capitalist ideology. And that, that is the thing that has driven uh, productivity and wealth creation in in these countries and 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 I and I guess and this is an area again that we've had discussion on before but I think it would be incredibly useful to to surface for for our listeners and and to explore a little bit a lot of the economic gains made by um, so-called industrialized nation states over the last hundred years or so the economic benefits that they've reaped have been really on the back of um, a economic drain from um, uh, other countries around the world. And it is and it is empires and empire building that has driven economic gain, um, not the pure capitalist um, uh, uh, systems within, within those countries themselves, which have given an inherent advantage. And that drain of, of resources from less well-off nations have, have left 
them poorer and uh, developed countries and industrialized countries richer. Um, would would you care to explore that as an idea? Yeah, well, that's a very that's a very interesting point you make, and it, it's actually a, a very interesting uh, insight into uh, where we are today because of the uh, history since the Second World War uh, of how the world has been world order has been shaped. Uh, and I think one of the most critical things, and this has been now documented by several uh, brilliant scholars, uh, where uh, we see that in many parts of the developing world, the retreating colonial powers actually left what they call an extractive model of, uh, of economic development, whereby a class of people were left as rulers who would then essentially continue to pillage the resources of the developing nation as representatives of the colonial masters, and the net resource flow would remain to the, to the, the, to the colonial powers. Um, Estimates show that um, for about a $250 billion flow of uh, ODA to the developing countries, there is a flow of almost 2 to $3 trillion back to the developed countries in the form of tax evasion or contractual services, uh, which, come part, uh, which come as a part of the ODA uh, process, and several other factors that actually allow a net flow of resources back to, the, to what we call now the developed uh, countries. So, yes, there is a hemorrhaging of resources from developing countries that are increasingly uh, not being able to meet the, the needs of their own population. And there has been now a very, very active debate in international financial institutions. Certainly, uh, there is a debate going on on Bretton Woods Three, which is uh, that there needs to be a new consensus on global financial governance in terms of uh, forgiving the, uh, the current debt that the developing world owes to the developed world. Uh, certainly to the private sector uh, bondholders. Um, you know that Sri Lanka and Pakistan almost went onto the verge of bankruptcy. Sri Lanka, in fact, defaulted uh, because it owed a lot of money to private bondholders that it had borrowed from. Um, and so essentially, uh, there is uh, you know, a high level of uh, resource flow back to uh, the bondholders that remain actually the developed country. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, one important aspect of the fact that um, developing countries don't find enough resources. And because of the corrupt political class that still perpetuates the extractive economic model that was put in place by the Victorian colonial powers, it, the dynamic essentially remains the same. Mm. But I think when we speak of uh, developed countries themselves, I think the crisis that now faces the northern part of the world is essentially... Uh, also has been making, uh, has been coming into its own uh, as the path between the between democracy and democratic practices and capitalism have have been diverging. Mm. So initially, in the first part of uh, the post second uh, Second World War part of uh, history, democracy and capitalism actually were uh, hand in hand and were friends with each other. So the better representation you had, the better policy process you had you would actually make economic policies that would uh, increase the middle class, would in fact increase consumption and more food over a longer term of 10 to 20 years. Uh, but as the uh, uh, deregulation happened and new liberal economics took over, you had uh, uh, gradually the uh, capitalism becoming so unregulated and so profit-oriented that it started defying uh, policymaking uh, and influencing policymaking process in its own favor. 
and so repre- representational politics and representational uh, 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 policy process became very weak uh, so there is a divergence between democracy and democratic practices and capitalism mm. that is now affecting the, the northern part of the world which is manifest in the sense of very low turnout in elections and you know large crowds turning up uh, large crowds of people turning up and uh, speaking their mind against government policies and the government still going ahead and bring those things you know in the uk there were millions of people who turned up against the iraq war and yet uh, uk did go ahead and participate in the iraq war on behalf of the us so essentially there is increasing divergence between how policies are being made and uh, and, uh, and it it sort of bends towards the uh, the capitalistic profit make and that i think is destroying the western democracy that was once held as the model of of uh, development and progress now of course the uh, developing part of the world is still far away from it but uh, what is happening in the northern part of the world is not very encouraging for the developing part of the world because initially the development model in the western part of the world was held as a model for developing nations to emulate and to mm. move forward in their direction but now there is a huge amount of uh, deeper questioning happening into whether uh, measuring progress by gdp growth and by economic growth uh, is meaningful is it good enough uh, for developing world to think about increasing their economic growth at all costs and not pay attention to what really uh, is more meaningful uh, for human progress really fascinating thing things to to think about there dr lim a couple of things that i would immediately touch upon is one is the idea that um some of the poor governments that we see in many of the de- developing countries around the world is a direct result of the legacy of of empire um and and the the infrastructures left behind by those countries that that had uh, uh been in charge uh, of many countries around the world you can think of specific examples like Pakistan Sri Lanka or countries in sub-saharan Africa and and certainly those legacies are long 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 reaching and uh, we often hear people decrying this and saying you know that well they've had 70 years to sort themselves out whereas the reality is that, that those legacies are long and uh, and in fact a lot of the wealth production um is is still in the hands of um uh private individuals as a as a, a as a legacy of um empire and you know one can one can think of zimbabwe one can think of other countries and and the fact that gold mines and diamond mines are still in the hands of 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 private individuals and and, uh, and the profits from those mines often don't get go, don't go anywhere close to um uh, the people of the country um uh, and and don't go close to serving their economic requirements the- and, and we should not uh, we shouldn't forget that actually the evolution of nation state in europe is a very interesting part of the history where mm. uh, the nations actually formed first and the states came in later where borders were drawn through the westphalian treaty in 1642 uh and so essentially you had nations who just decided to draw borders around themselves mm. but in the hasty withdrawal in the colonial withdrawal at one point in time in africa and parts of middle east and most large parts of the world uh, what happened was uh, that states were drawn without any respect to whether these were ethnically homogenous and mm. what kind of uh, you know populations were living in those areas in some parts of africa if you actually see the map somebody just took a ruler and drew straight lines 
yeah. um, and divided country. And here, state nations were set up actually as extractive units. These are not nation states because it was not meant to be a structure which would allow um, people to actually voice their own uh, autonomy and have sovereignty over themselves. Uh, once state borders were drawn in such a way that uh, tribes were divided and ethnic and ethnicity was uh, was sort of you know fragmented. Uh, it was very likely that um, it would lead to chaos and disorder, and it is in this chaos and disorder that extractive extractive economics actually flourishes, because once you have, uh, for instance, between India and Pakistan, when you have had three wars, and borders were drawn sort of in a very hasty, uh, 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 non-methodical way, you had populations that were driven to pillage and murder, murdering each other because. Suddenly, they were they were uh, you know at the opposite ends of a geographical border, uh, where when they were actually ethnically similar. You know, Punjab was divided into parts where Pakistan, Punjab, and the eastern part of the mm. Indian Punjab. So you have Punjabis living on both sides, but they are now unable to talk to each other because there is this border. Uh, while these Punjabis from Pakistan have to live with the Sindhis in the in Sindh, who are ethnically um, and linguistically very different from each other. Um, so I think the uh, the the extractive model of the state nation that was left by the colonial uh, withdrawing powers was left in such a way that uh, a cohesive policy process could not actually be instituted in these places. So I, I still believe that many of the uh, state nations that we see in the uh, in the uh, in the realm of the withdrawal of the colonial powers are still very dysfunctional, and it is this dysfunction at the basis of the policy process and the participatory democracy. Uh, where we have tried to impose the um, mono-ethnic and uh, one language, uh, one language nation states from Europe, who went through a very uh, traumatic 500 years of uh, nation national formation, we have tried to impose that kind of uh, uh, or, or import that model of democracy from those nations into parts of the world that were left in uh, in a, a hasty retreat in a very disorganized manner. Mm. So, yes, I agree that part of the blame has to go to, you know, um, these nations not being able to find themselves properly and uh, get the kind of leadership structures that are important for cohesive and good uh, policy dialogue. But I think that the, the, the initial uh, process of what happened laid the foundations of what really uh, actually is going on currently in the developing world. And, uh, and unless we really get back to the basics and fully redraw what we believe are, you know, what is what you call the development science, uh, based mm -hmm. on uh, very different models from the north uh, that cannot be replicated in the south. Yeah. Uh, we have to really rethink the whole paradigm of what we call uh, social progress and social development. Could it be argued, Dr. Aleem, and, th and this I think is an important one for those probably listening to this, this program here in the UK, that uh, that exploitative model that we have seen... Um, which has created huge economic um, inequality in many parts of the developing world, has, has in a sense come home to roost for many uh, nations in in the West, in the in the global North, in the developed world, um, because now we see um, communities suffer. Now we see people having greater and greater wealth inequality here in the UK. For instance, they're suffering from a from a lack of opportunities, a lack of jobs, and it, it is an exploitative economic model. It is a profit-driven model 
that drives that. Um, it is not a concern for the well-being of individuals within a nation. It is a concern for the economic viability as a whole of a nation. It is where financial markets are seen as the most important thing to protect, not the rights of individuals to um, be able to have happy, fulfilled lives. Is that is that an idea that has any merit? In fact, uh, if you look at the numbers, numbers coming out of the UK are quite alarming. I think that, uh, if I recall correctly, um, some surveys indicate that 25% of the children in UK are multidimensionally poor, in fact. Hmm. Um, so uh, there's a famous uh, quote by someone, I don't really exactly recall the countries, but, you know, people usually say that there is a bit of Africa in the UK and there's a bit of a UK in Africa. Hmm. Uh, in the sense, there are parts of Africa that are extremely rich, um, and have the kinds of populations that could be anywhere in the world, and they are similar in their character and behavior everywhere in the world. And there are parts of UK that are like uh, uh, numbers uh, where you where you think uh, it could not be a possibility in the UK. But yes, certainly in mm. the UK there are still people who are going hungry. There are food banks that have increased tremendously in number and still unable to meet the needs of uh, people who are homeless. Um, you know that we are st- we are as humanity first in the UK have been working very hard to increase the number of food banks because there's such a huge demand in terms mm. of people coming in and getting some help. So, yes, I think there is uh, uh, something very, very wrong with uh, with what has happened. And uh, and I, I believe it has to do with, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we usually talk about uh, uh, ethnic and linguistic types uh, in human history, but you know, there is tribalism also in capitalist society. Mm. So um, I believe that if you have, uh, you know, industrialists and, 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 and if you look at uh, the uh, military-industrial complex, that I think is also very tribal in nature and in, in its approach to how it wants to treat itself and treat others. And once you're a part of that tribe, then you would want to actually preserve your style of life at all costs. And you would not look at what is good for other people. Uh, and that's where we say that there is an issue with, of course, uh, moral character of the nation. Uh, you know, uh, there is widespread abandonment of uh, values, whether they're Christian or Islamic or Jewish, uh, by general population. And so, you know, this whole concept of what uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya movement, uh, is saying about the fact that uh, modern world tends to constantly emphasize rights uh, over others but doesn't really talk about duties uh, for others. Uh, and, and that balance has been uh, missing because of the individualistic and tribal nature of uh, politics that has taken shape in uh, now in other part of the world, where people really do care about their rights and their uh, right to be happy and prosperous at all costs, as opposed to what duty they have to other people around them. And that, I think, is, uh, is probably the basis of what we are seeing in, in what is happening to these very well-performing, welfare states and, and democracies in other parts of the world. That, that's a really interesting uh, dimension of, of this and I, and I guess is a really important thing to, to reflect on this idea that the, the importance of ensuring that individuals understand their own responsibilities as well as their, uh, as well as their own rights is, is critical to the f- good functioning of a, of a society. And I guess 
I mean, what you're pointed towards there in terms of economic inequality and and the the tribalism of we- of wealth is an interesting point, and I and I guess it underlines that that uh, idea, which is both an old and a new idea, which is that the the class struggle is is significantly greater than any divides on the basis of religion or ethnicity or even region. Um, and that, and that these are these are the things when it comes to economic inequality that bind together people across um, many different parts of the world. And I you know, think think of the of the struggle at the time of, of um, uh, before the independence of India and Pakistan, where um, the uh, uh, cotton workers in in Lancashire were in solidarity with. Um, cotton growers and cotton pickers in 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 India, um, and there was uh, you know that 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 solidarity was on the basis of class, not on the basis of uh, religion, ethnicity, uh, country, nation, anything like that. It was a recognition that the, someone who suffers uh, as uh, in, in another part of the world because of um, uh, economic inequality, because of poverty, is is um, as close to me as as. Uh, the person next door is, um, and so I think this is a, that's a very powerful idea and and a, a, and a powerful reminder of our own responsibility for uh, anyone anywhere in the world, no matter no matter where they are, if they are if they are suffering. Um, I I'd, I'd like to touch upon also the idea because you you said right at the very beginning and I think it was a really critical point which was that we can focus too much on on the economic status of a country um, but nonetheless when it comes to the individual you know someone with a with a, an empty belly can't think about um, uh, politics can't think about um, uh, diff- different aspects of the su- the subtleties of of um, uh, of their uh, uh, of their life and 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 the well-being of a of a nation or of an of an individual it is the 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 bottommost part of of maslow's hierarchy of needs which is to to have a full belly and to have shelter once we once we get beyond that then this more complex idea of of human development index or some other way of us being able to accurately uh, portray how well off people are, not just in, in an economic sense, but in a very human sense, uh, becomes very, very important. It, it, is that something that you could you could explore with us? I mean, this this idea that there is a a different multidimensional way of understanding um, uh, human progress and and how well off a, a country might be, and that on that basis, even so-called developed countries are. Um, well behind in terms of their the development of the uh, individuals within a nation. Yes, yeah, that's a very complex question. I think that um, um, I think that um, what we are looking at is a major uh, watershed point in our history and mm. future of humanity. Um, you know that um, we have talked about this uh, for uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what is now happening and. How this rigid, um, rigid, evolving um, tribalism, uh, the military industrial complex, and all the other factors. Now we are actually on the brink of a nuclear war. Um, and you know, uh, the question is whether humanity will wake up and do something before that, or would it be happening after that catastrophic event? Unfortunately, in many parts of our human history, 
we know that equality actually uh, comes back to human society after catastrophic events. Mm. And if you remember when we talked when COVID was starting, we talked about the fact that COVID could have been or was possibly an event which could have uh, had catastrophic uh, consequences for all the nations, and people would have come to their senses and said, "Okay, so we do we do we really need a new social global social contract?" Um, because the global governance institutions have have consistently been been failing in being able to uh, rein in certain uh, elements, uh, certain tribes. So who are uh, at it from uh, relentlessly uh, in, in the game of brinkmanship and think that uh, think that uh, somebody else will actually blink uh, their eye before they do, uh, and that's a very very dangerous game that is being played. And you know, uh, it's, it's really sad and uh, very unfortunate that people cannot come together on the agenda of preventing a nuclear war, uh, and things seem to be flowing in that direction quite drastically. Uh, but I think that human, uh, in terms of our history, I think we are at a point where we are all looking at the possibility of a major revision of how human societies are organized. Mm. So currently, the unit of organization actually is a nation-state or a state-nation. But to, to me, it seems, and at the hazard of uh, of not being a political scientist or a future teller, I must say, I'm out of depth here, but I think that... Um, there needs to emerge a new way of uh, productive organization or, or human organization that would allow people to function better and still uh, capitalize on human productivity and yet lead to that kind of uh, uh, fulfillment or purposefulness that human life demands. Um, and I think that we have talk, talked about this uh, before, but um, there has been a lot of argument about what kind of philosophy or what kind of method of organization could be offered to humanity in terms of being able to salvage itself. And uh, we as Ahmadis have been consistently talking about the fact that, um, that Islam offers both from an economic model and from a social model this uh, level of uh, another method of organization. Mm-hmm. Um, the strength of that model is that it doesn't really have to do uh, with radical overhaul of current structures. It can still operate within those structures. So, you know, that when we meet in our gatherings, uh, Ahmadis from different nations and different nation states come together and we all feel part of a larger uh, human uh, human group, uh, which comes together on the basis of common interests and not because of my interest clashes against another interest or my nationality clashes against another nationality. I think that when uh, the, the the deterioration in human relationships has has been caused by people uh, sort of um, uh, gravitating towards smaller identities like nationalities, uh, patriotism, ultranationalism, uh, you know, linguistic, linguistic, and and, uh, uh, and ethnic identity, and that only happens when we are desperate for finding ourselves among other humans, and if there is no, nothing at on offer which can bring us all together as, as a community, then the gravitation towards smaller identities actually increases and that creates polarization in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, without getting into too much of proselytization here, I, I want to say that I think that we have found a model over the last, over, over last 100 years that we have been practicing now as a community, which does tend to melt away some of those minor identities and bring us together as, as, as a large part of humanity with that motto of love for all and hated for none. Uh, so I think uh, the head of our movement has been offering that model to 
the northern part of the world and both the eastern and, and developing part of the world to say, why don't you now try this economic and social model when, when they have experimented with everything and have now come to a conclusion that some of these things actually do not really fulfill human needs and, and, the, and the need for purposefulness uh, in terms of relationship with God and their duties to other human beings. Um, so that's a very involved, long discussion, and I'm quite sure that you have many other people who are more qualified than me to talk about this. But I think we need to have a very comprehensive discussion mm. on what kind of economic policies does uh, Islam offer, what kind of social policies do we offer, what kind of peace can be forged, and what is it that appeals to a large part of the population in terms of uh, the philosophy of, uh, of Islam that we offer, actually. And I think I think that's a really important idea, Dr. Aleem, that you've that you've touched upon. And and many people obviously will be familiar with the idea of of sort of internationalism, or or that you know the idea that no matter what which country you belong to, another human being in another part of the world is is your brother or sister and someone worthy of your respect and worthy of your of your help. And I guess that the the model that the, the Muslim community has is is. A beautiful example of that, and one one that um, many could look to to emulate. And I think that without um, exaggeration, and you will have experienced this as well, Dr. Aleem, that as an Ahmadi Muslim, wherever I go in the world, if I meet another Ahmadi Muslim, no matter what the color of their skin, no matter what their language, you know, it could be someone from Ireland, it could be someone from Indonesia or Africa. Um, the, I embrace that person as as a as a brother, and that spirit, that idea of embracing another as as a brother, um, actually even then goes goes beyond uh, just just um, the idea that they might be an Ahmadi Muslim, and and, uh, and I think instills in Ahmadi Muslims a very strong ideal that anyone anywhere in the world. Um, is is my brother or my sister and deserving of of my help and I and I think that that is that sentiment is is perhaps the idea that needs to be really strongly uh, embedded within um, the the way in which all of us as individuals th- think about the world um, and think about uh, people all over the world and this and this if if this idea were uh, were paramount. Then we would see what um, uh, Hazrat Mizam the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has talked about as, as this concept of of global justice, of of, of true justice, because this is um, an Islamic principle, but a universal principle um, that Islam points towards. This idea that um, wh- whoever uh, you um, are dealing with anywhere in the world. They are as much deserving of your uh, respect and your help as as your neighbour and and as of of anyone else. And, and nation states also need to behave in the same way in the respect that they give to each other in order to ensure true justice. And only through that uh, idea of true justice can uh, are, can we individually and as nations uh, reach a state of true peace. Because if we if we don't, if we're constantly looking to pull each other back, then um, uh, we are we are in uh, in effect squandering our our own efforts and energies as well, um, and and ultimately not not reaching a um, a better place as as individuals or or as nations. And so that I think is a really powerful idea that that deserves that deserves to be underlined as well. 
Um, the, the history of, um, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. uh, but I just wanted to uh, follow your thread. I, uh, I think that um, we have we recently talked about, uh, you know, uh, early childhood, um, what we call relational injury. Mm. And, uh, you know, if your caregiver has uh, uh, not been up to the mark and has, in fact, not demonstrated and not attuned you to love, uh, then you know the the long term damage to your personality and to your even in fact your economic and social productivity is huge. Uh, we know from studies like uh, acute childhood event study in the U.S. where uh, people are prone to heart disease and brain hemorrhages in their late age if they have been exposed to relational injuries from their primary caregiver in their early childhood. Mm. Now, uh, what what I wanted to get back to is the fact that. Uh, when we talk about Islam and its approach to human and social welfare, uh, the problem that we usually encounter, and it just might appear too simple to our Western listeners, um, is that they would usually say that they come from a very traumatic history and background of uh, struggle between the state and church. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, that the church as an institution uh, has had abused a lot of uh, common people. Um, that the struggle between the state and church led to millions of people dying in Europe. And so there is a very deep distrust of um, of religious institutions as founded on the basis of love. Uh, and that, I believe, is a very important civilizational, relational injury that the Western nations have gone through. Mm. Um, so when you talk to people in the West, they would usually say they are really, they, they might want to consider, um, you know, love for all, for hatred for none, but they might not want to consider uh, Islam because this Islam as an institutional approach to love. Mm. Um, for myself, I became an Ahmadi, you know, in 1993. Uh, and uh, I had been running away from institutional form of Islam for a long time. And the reason why I actually was able to find uh, solace in, in Ahmadiyya version of Islam was exactly because of this, that the first book that I brought, read from the Prophet Sire mentioned uh, his approach to, to God. And he did not talk about the fact that you start, you need to start praying five times a day. Mm. He, in fact, said that uh, if you want to get back to uh, some form of solace and peace and contentment, you need to start thinking about a loving God uh, who is uh, who is Rahman and Rahim, you know, uh, beneficent and, uh, and merciful. Uh, and it is where your journey should start. Uh, because once you're in love, then institution makes sense. Um, you know, once you're, uh, in, our, in our case, uh, when we love the, the head of the movement, uh, whatever he says makes a lot of sense to us. Uh, you know, if we were not in love with him, then even if we were Ahmadis, we would want to, you know, uh, be, uh, be a bit skeptical about what he says. So love is such an important critical element of healing and approach to religion that sometimes we tend to ignore the fact that uh, Perhaps the approach towards convincing other people is not to convince them more intellectually, but to say that there is an offer of uh, unconditional love to them, which would not repeat the institutional relational injury they had in their own history. And that this new form of uh, you know, uh, loving approach to God uh, can create an institution, uh, and will create an institution for them that would carry the spirit of love within a cup, because the, uh, the, the spirit cannot really, uh, can be can, cannot be contained without some kind of a form. But they have to be, they have to be, they have to understand that the journey starts from loving and understanding and becoming aware of uh, 
primal relationship with God, uh, which is uh, unconditional, uh, you know, uh, relational repairing journey from where to start. And and then I think they can probably move into thinking about, okay, so if Islam is the starting point uh, of that loving journey, then what are the institutional reformation uh, and manifestations of, of Islam that it offers to have that love pervade in human society through uh, uh, through institutions and through formal laws, uh, which might which must must find their expression in 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 a in a loving embrace rather than in in, in persecution or in punishment, which has been uh, the the force that actually has taken people away from their original Christian values and Jewish values. Thank you, Dr. Lima. A really profound point um, to to round, round off the the hour's discussion. We just have a few minutes left uh, in in this part of the program, and and really a really uh, an eye opening um, uh, point that you've that you've just made there about. Uh, about the direction of, of human development and, and, and how we can ultimately come to a society that, that is supportive of the, of the spiritual as well as phys- physical needs of, of individuals and, and of the broader society. Um, I'd, I'd like to round off the discussion in the last few minutes with, I guess, a really important point, one which has been previously raised by His Holiness. As a Muslim, then directly relates to our discussion that we've been having, and and we see the specter of nuclear war um, in the world now. It is it is real. It is tangible. With with things that are happening in Ukraine uh, and between Ukraine and Russia, or, or Russia and and uh, and the the West in in reality, because these are, these are the the players on either side of this uh, of this unfortunate. War that is happening in in Ukraine, we we see the worry and the specter of nuclear war, uh, and this is uh, as has been pointed out by um, many many commentators and um, by His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, who's who's warned um, politicians all over the world of the danger of this. This is something that must be avoided at all costs. The the devastating consequences of nuclear war, whether it is even just a few bombs being dropped um, on an individual nation or whether it leads to um, worldwide conflagration, the, the consequences of that for humanity are potentially horrific, with long-lasting effects down through the generations and, and across um, uh, many, many millions of, of lives. Um, uh, Dr. Lim, if, if I can ask you to to sort comment on on that in terms of where you think we are at right now in terms of the danger of nuclear war and and um, and how best we can work to to avoid it and to get to a position where that that is not a spectre that that is real or tangible. Um, yeah, well, I think um, you've touched upon this earlier, and I think that um, I sometimes tend to uh, give this uh, example that, you know, if you're sitting in a car and, and the driver was sort of out of control and traveling at very high speed, mm. the passengers of the car would actually have to come and talk to the driver and say, please slow down because this is putting all of us, uh, our lives at risk. And so I think now the question is not really who provoked the war, who didn't provoke the war, you know, who's going to do what. 
I think humanity to come together on one point agenda, which is to just uh, prevent the war from happening. Um, and unfortunately, our policymakers who are playing the game of uh, brinkmanship and the military industrial complex that uh, His Holiness has talked about over the last five to seven years uh, is completely out of control. And uh, we, as humanity, the six billion people, are sitting mm. in these uh, in these cars, being driven by these people, and are completely helpless in either taking control from them, or even being able to convince them that this is not the direction to go. Please slow down and talk about this. And uh, unfortunately, if you talk to policy because on both sides, each one now thinks that it is appeasement if you want to withdraw, um, and and not to de-escalate. Uh, unfortunately. The positions are now so fixed on both sides that nobody would want to lose faith. And it is inevitably going to go into the direction that we all really fear about. Uh, there has been now been a consistent talk about use of tactical nuclear weapons uh, by the Russians and by, you know, and of course there will be a retaliation from this side. So, you know, even limited nuclear war would be catastrophic for certainly for Europe, uh, you know, a very small population. And so I think that there is a real need, and Ahmadiyya community has been going around doing small walks in different cities of the world. We are a small community, but we have had several demonstrations in different parts of the world on Stop World War Three, you know, slogans. We have put, a, put them on the buses. Uh, we have tried to engage the intellectual community to talk about this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we have been talking about this for the last seven, eight years, but intellectuals are just coming around to mm. this reality now that it's going to be happening very soon. Yeah. And so I believe that we need to accelerate that agenda of preventing World War III. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Aleem. And, and we're coming up to 11 o'clock now and the, and the news and halfway through our, our program. So I'd just like to end by thanking Dr. Abdul Aleem for a fascinating discussion on uh, the current state of play around the world about, about um, uh, human development, about the importance of um, uh, countries and nations investing in the right way uh, in the development of, of uh, individuals within within their country. And I'm sure we'll have many fascinating discussions on this topic in in the future. So, uh, Dr. Lim, thank you very much for your participation. And for our listeners, please join us again after the news. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 2nd of October 2022, and you're listening live to Weekend World. On the first hour of the program, I had the opportunity to have a discussion with Dr. Abdul Aleem, expert in international development, and we had a, a very fascinating discussion on the critical importance of investment in the development of, of um, individuals within a nation very early on, especially children, um, below the below the age of five, and in the health of a nation, and the fact that Focusing on the well-being of individuals within a nation is the thing that really helps to develop economic prosperity for a nation and helps um, nation states to be able to uh, really thrive. But there is, a, there is also a broader aspect to this, which is that the, in, an investment in the um, emotional and spiritual well-being of individuals within a nation should be the real marker of how we measure how well a nation is doing. And in that respect, most countries around the world fall well behind 
this uh, idea of well-being for individuals. And this is something that, that needs to be focused on and needs to be worked on. And it is only through a focus on that sort of well-being, it is only a focus on uh, reducing inequality of all forms that we will get to a situation where individuals are able to, to prosper um, and, and really make true progress towards world peace. Um, we're, we're coming up to the uh, pre-recorded part of the program now and uh, you'll have the opportunity to listen to our colleagues from Rational Religion and, and some discussions that they're going to have on various aspects of um, uh, atheism and religion uh, and, uh, and also have the opportunity to listen to um, a chapter of a book on the life of the um, uh, Holy Prophet. Um, so thank you for listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam and, and do join us again soon. Um, uh, let's listen now to um, our colleagues from Rational Religion. What blows your mind? What gives you awe? Well, I think that the nature of the universe uh, gives me awe and, the, and just the, the huge expanse of the, of the universe, how far away things are and how big they are. The fact that there are things like supermassive black holes that are equal to a billion suns. You know. What about dark matter? Doesn't that freak you out too? Uh, yeah, and dark, dark matter um, is also, I mean, <laughs> dark matter and dark energy are, are, are kind of interesting because I mean, I'm not sure what those actually are. Yeah, no, you know, nobody does either. Yeah, those actually are, and particularly dark energy. In fact, this is why, you know, that, that may be an argument for this being a simulation. Um, because in a simulation, you wouldn't, you know, you could just make things be however you want. It's a, the laws don't all have to be consistent. So, I mean, so he ends up saying he does believe in a superconsciousness potentially, because uh, if you believe in the simulation theory, it literally is that there is a super advanced consciousness which has created our universe as a virtual reality Sims game. And we just happen to be conscious. I really like the Sims. inhabitants of them. You very much like the Sims. I you like played a Sims. lot of Sims as a kid. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to create a. S- Super universe. I don't, I don't think you'll get that. No. <laughs> um, so he does end up talking about a super that he kind of does believe, therefore, that a superconscious may be in there. And he's on record talking about the fact that we may be in a simulation. Um, but before that, he was talking about how far things are away. Because so he was talking, <laughs> he was asked, "What gives you awe?" And I, what do you guys make of that? That kind of statement that you know what? Do, I mean, in fairness, he's just answering this, these questions that someone asks him. Probably bit, finds them a bit odd. But yeah. he's asked, what gives you awe? And he talks about uh, distance. So what do you make of that? I think the first thing is, if there were no creator, why would things give you awe? Why would there be a universe that would be so awe-striking mm. if there wasn't anyone actually to create it? Can blind chance give people awe? Can it be so striking and so uh, vast and complex? And can the universe be the way it is mm. just by blind chance? So that's the design argument. That's the design argument. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so he says, what gives, what gives me awe? And he says, what gives me awe is the black holes and the galaxies and the fact that things are really big in the universe mm-hmm. and things are quite far away. And I agree that's quite awe-striking in a sense because, mm. you know, we're, we're small and the universe is big. Mm. So he answered the question. Yeah. But again, I think he perhaps needs to look further and think, well, how can things be like this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, what? What is the next? What? Why have used that or as an avenue to figure out why do I find this so awesome? What is what is so f- you know striking about this? And is this evidence of a deeper purpose, a deeper meaning, rather than just scale? 
Yeah, and even a creator, somebody yeah. that created something that has the capability of giving me so much awe. I guess it's a, in a sense, it's a, it's almost like an inherent argument for the existence of God, isn't it? Like if if God creates you, it makes sense that He also creates the universe in such a way that it it leads you to Him, which is what the Quran says as well. Well, well, I think you're there is definitely awe there, but what is awe? An awe, a feeling of awe, is a feeling that something is. Um, overwhelmingly larger and overwhel- overwhelming, I think. Overwhelming, it's overwhelming nice, yeah. in some sense. And in that sense, you know, anybody can look at the universe and yes, feel awe. But I mean, a person can also feel awe at a horrific incident. Mm. You know, something that is overwhelming can also cause the striking of awe mm. at, a, at, a, at a negative event. Mm. Okay. Um, a volcano exploding and destroying an entire village can strike a person with awe mm. if you were to witness it. How could someone, or how could this happen? Yeah, I mean, there's, but it, it has, again, absolutely no uh, intrinsic value. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, the, the book Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Phenomenal book. Um, you know, it's a, it's a book that it can illuminate a person's heart mm. in, a, in a day. And uh, at the beginning of it, he talks about the natural, moral, and spiritual conditions of human being. Mm. And uh, he talks about how people confuse what is natural and what is moral. Mm. This is a good example of it. Mm. Like, feeling awe is just a natural response. It's a reflex. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it has no moral... Uh, there's no moral content there. Yeah. Okay. And, and they're taking that awe and applying definitely it... Definitely spiritual content. Yeah, definitely not spiritual content. <laughs> they're taking that awe and applying it to having a spiritual aspect to it. Mm. When actually it's just a, a reflex. Mm. Um, you know, a child will feel awe on seeing a fire truck. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yours does. <laughs> Mine does. <laughs> it's like, oh, truck. Right? <laughs> a child will feel awe on seeing a fire truck. I've said this to you before. A really newborn baby will will experience awe on looking at their hands and looking yeah. at their feet and figuring out that they've got hands and feet. Like there comes a moment when they suddenly realize they've got feet. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. is a moment of awe and amazement and joy. Yeah. It has no meaning. It's meaningless. I mean, it can only have meaning in a framework that is meaningful. So if you have if you're if you have a framework that things were designed by God, you can see you, the the great structures of the universe will be reflective of God's power. And Correct. that's that's something which is awesome. Because yep. God's power, therefore, is so much greater than ours that yes. it's unbelievable. It's transcend- transcendent. You know, you know, if you have a, a your feeling of awe, even in even in a small local level, if you go to a, a big church or a great place of worship, you know, people may may say that they get that kind of feeling. But it's within that kind of. Uh, it's because it evokes a sense of humility mm. on a cosmic scale uh, in the in the framework that this is a godly place and that you know this is you know God has created us. But if it's just uh, there's a star really far away. It's really big. It's really yeah. big in a universe which was created out of chance and has no meaning mm. and ultimately Warge can be sucked into a black hole. What is awesome about that? <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not really awesome. No, it's not. Also, in an atheistic context, we are basically, as human beings, the highest consciousness possibly in the universe. Yeah. And so is it possible that we would get so awestruck by non-living things... Mm. That are that are so much greater or more powerful than us, mm. or is it more logical that there's that the reason we feel awe is because we're small, but there there is a consciousness that is greater than us behind all mm. of that. Yeah, there's yeah. like an inherent sense of this yes. was not mm. from uh, this is this is from something greater. Yes, I mean yeah. I always find this, and he, when, I don't think we can necessarily get through the whole video. No. But towards the end of the video, he 
he he talks a lot about and he invokes Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah. Talk about how we are this pale blue dot. We are this dot as microcosm in the universe. And the implication there that atheists always bring out is that, well, therefore, you know, why would God create, why would God take any interest in human beings seeing that we are so small and puny in, in the vast expanse of space? Yeah. And that always strikes me again as a completely, that's a non sequitur, it's an illogical step because, you know, God is not bound. It's again an anthropomorphization of God. It's, yeah. a, it's conceiving of God in human terms that because we are bound by time and space, somehow God is also going to be awestruck if something is big and you know has been around for a long time yeah it's like no god is the one who's created space-time okay <laughs> god is the one who creates space-time is outside of space-time space-time doesn't apply to god okay yeah so for god the entire universe is no smaller no bigger than the head of a pin yeah. and the head of a pin is you know no smaller than the size of the entire universe in the mm. sense that space itself is 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 infinite for such a being and it's also completely finite it's nothing and it's yeah. every, you know do you know what i mean it mm. has no relativistically it has no meaning it's, it's, it's all equal it's all equal yeah exactly so it's exactly this to god it's all equal yeah right because remember at the end of the day god created the universe from uh, a space smaller than an atom yeah right and, and inflated it yeah so that should tell you that space to god means nothing what god cares about is uh is value and meaning yeah in in correlation to his attributes yeah right because fundamentally if you are the supreme de- deity and the supreme being and everything is temporary except for you. The only thing that has value is you. Yeah, <laughs> and the, and by mm. extension, that which reflects you or that which connects with you. Correct. So so you know this is why God says you know pride is my cloak and greatness my robe. And he who competes with me in respect of either of them, I shall cast into hellfire. And that tells you that human beings' pride and greatness are not out for us. And so when God mm. says, <clears throat> you know. Uh, you know why would what would God value? That's the question here because they're like, oh well, why would God value human beings so so small? No, God values us because we have consciousness, yeah, and we have the ability to reflect God's attributes mm. within our own sphere. Mm. And to that extent, a human being in their five foot four, you know, shoulder width dimension mm. is more valuable than a ten trillion light years mm. of empty space, mm. right? Yeah. And that's 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 actually meaningful. So there is not a linear relationship between size and meaning. Um, and ultimately, if you like, just to go on from that, like if we find some massive planet, you know, in another solar system, if we find even a single bacterium on that, that single bacterium is going to be, you know, more important and more meaningful than the whole the rest of the rest of the solar system. We right, don't care yeah. about the size; it's about yeah. what's actually on it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also I was going to say there's a variation of the pale blue dot argument, which also Elon Musk alluded to which is, well, why would God care about our individual actions? Why should God care if we eat pork or drink alcohol or all of these things because we're so small and mm. all of these kind of things? Yeah, and I think it's it's the same It's the same mm. as what you said. Mm. The, the whole purpose of our existence is to emulate God's attributes and to be an image of God, literally, and to try and imitate God uh, and worship him. And that's more valuable to God than any planet or star or anything like that to try and get ourselves morally and spiritually um, kind of at one with God. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to, just to, a great point. just to move on as well to the, uh, to well, go clarify some of the purpose and the meaning stuff. You've always, you've written before for us a, a very interesting um, uh, account of your time in Cornwall. Can you tell us more oh. about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, well, we, I went to Cornwall a few years ago and we stayed um, on like a, near a farm. 
Are there farms in Cornwall? There, there are farms in Cornwall okay. and fields and these kind of things. <laughs> and um, there were loads of cows in this particular um, field. And then a few days later, we came and there were a few less cows. And obviously, some of these cows, you know, they were being reared in order to be slaughtered for meat for people like that. And I just imagined thinking, imagine the lives of those cows. They mm. kind of eat grass and they maybe talk to each other in whatever language they have. But imagine if they set themselves purposes and they said, oh, I want to be the, you know, the most strong cow or I want, you know, to run a marathon as a cow or all these kind of things. Ultimately, all of these purposes are meaningless because what will happen is those cows will be slaughtered Mm. and their purpose (laughs) is to be eaten, right? Their purpose is for us to enjoy them. Mm. And any other purpose they concoct for themselves is really unimportant ultimately and really meaningless because the end is the same is what you're saying because the end is the same and the and the meaning is set externally it's not something they can invent exactly yeah Mm. and it's the same with us in a sense if there is a god yeah and we have a purpose set for us then it makes no difference what we say we say oh my purpose is to be able to become an olympic swimmer or Mm. to be a you know dancer or to do this or that None of it really matters ultimately in the context of the purpose that God has for us, the purpose that the higher consciousness has for us, mm. just like we have for the cows. Mm. And it's, I think, the most important thing really in life is to try and find out what is our higher purpose. Is there a higher purpose? Mm. And the way we can find that out is through, through prayer, through trying to connect with God mm. and, uh, and figuring it out. And yeah. there's a beautiful another again going back to the philosophy of the teachings of Islam which is what mm. you've touched on there he, the promised Messiah Mirza Ghulam Ahmed uh, peace be upon him he, he makes this point about purpose and how can you know what your purpose is and he says that it can't be that a human being's purpose is to um, uh, do something uh, physical he gives the example of honey he says no human being could produce honey as better than the honeybee mm. okay he says it has to be suited to the capacities and temperaments of what a human being is and he says, in that respect, you can judge what the purpose of anything is by asking what its highest reach is. Hmm. Okay? So he gives the example of a bullock in a field. He says, no matter what that bullock does, okay, <clears throat> the highest thing it could ever serve in terms of grand design and grand purpose is plowing that field. Hmm. Okay? It's not going to achieve anything greater than that. Hmm. He says, but when we conceive and look at human beings, what is the distinguishing characteristic about them and what is the highest reach of their consciousness can attain? He says the highest reach that their consciousness can attain is seeking the everlasting, eternal being who created everything. Hmm. And that is true or whether connecting you're with it. connecting with it. That is true whether you're an atheist or not. No yeah. atheist could ever claim that there is a higher faculty that man has set for himself than reaching the eternal creator, even if God does not exist, hmm. Right. There is no doubt people, human beings, have sought out the eternal creator. And there cannot be conceived of a higher purpose than that. Mm. Right? Mm. And so by definition, that therefore is shows the path as to what the, the purpose of any creature is. Because the purpose is always going to be the thing for which, which is highest in your reach. Yeah. Right? And the other thing I think I would just add to that is that you can always know what your purpose is by asking yourself... What is the thing which all human beings universally throughout time and space and human history, throughout geographic location, what do they all have equal access to? Hmm. Because God created them as well, didn't he? Right? And the one thing that they all had access to, they didn't have access to iPhones, they didn't have access to laptops, didn't have access to complex higher education, etc. Okay? But they all had access to moral choice. Moral choice and the ability to reach God through prayer. Hmm. So it's not about your intellect, it's not about your looks, it's not about your money. Yeah. 
it's actually about your choices and and that is spread equally those options are spread equally between all human beings mm. you know and there's probably a reason why they asked elon musk that question about who do you worship because they probably think well he's got more weight on this issue because he's the richest he's achieved the best materially of any other human being mm. but in reality he is not the prime person to answer that question mm. he is he has Very equal weight to answer that question and we all have equal capacity not capacity but ability perhaps to reach god or to opportunity or to, opportunity, opportunity yeah. to connect yeah. with god yeah yeah i mean we've spoken a lot about then the theistic framework gives you purpose gives you meaning that is to connect and reach with god and and i think this mm-hmm. this kind of video and so many other videos like this and a lot of things you're talking about carl sagan elon musk these kind of people they try and invent meaning in a meaningless framework but I think it's worthwhile seeing what an honest atheist says, <laughs> because there aren't that many in this respect, in respect of actually saying that there is that this is all completely meaningless. Uh, but there was there was you know one famous one, Bill Pro- Professor William Provine, who uh, was in this movie on intelligent design called uh, Expelled: No Intelligence Allowed, um, and and he he kind of lays it out quite starkly. So let's take a look at what he said. No gods, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no human free will are all deeply connected to an an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and that's all there is to it. Dr. Will Provine, professor of the history of biology at Cornell University, gave us another disturbing glimpse into where Darwinism can lead. Oh, I was a Christian, but I never heard anything about evolution because it was illegal to teach it in Tennessee. Dr. Provine's first biology professor changed all that. He started talking about evolution as if it had no design in it whatsoever. And I came up to him and I said, you've left out the most important part. And he said, if you feel the same way at the end of one quarter, I want you to stand up in front of the students in this class and tell them this deep lack in evolution. And I read that book so carefully, I could find no sign of there being any design whatsoever in evolution. And I immediately began to doubt the existence of the deity. But it starts by giving up an active deity, then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's an imminent morality. And finally, there's no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life. We live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. So uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, atheism is completely tied up with materialism and this idea of unguided evolution. We are just physical substrates. We are um, nothing but brains in some kind of animation. We have no free will, no real free choice. Uh, That's who we are. I mean, obviously, we believe in evolution, but we believe in evolution that was guided by God designed by God. So that's a different form of evolution. He's talking about atheistic evolution. Mm. Uh, but that that's all you can really say. There is no meaning. Don't try and invent it. Don't put inspirational music against a space backdrop. Like, just just <laughs> accept it. Like, there's no meaning. It's all, it's all pointless. <clears throat> well, don't accept it. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that we all rebel against it. We all know 
intrinsically there is actually greater meaning yeah but people people should use that and figure out well how can there be meaning the only yeah. way it can be meaning is that if there is a god mm. um, that that's the only avenue that you have so if people should embark upon that then descend into the kind of despair and depression of uh professor provine that's why people say they're spiritual i guess because even if they're not religious mm. they say they're spiritual because what they want is to connect with something greater than just what's material mm. and they ascribe spirituality to all these various things mm. um but the fact that again they have this impulse for it suggests that perhaps it's not that they should be looking for they should be looking for the ultimate source of of spirituality and purpose and meaning um mm. being god okay so uh i found this video of um elon musk a is like an up-and-coming tech designer in the us <laughs> and uh, he's talking about god and religion um it's a good video from elon musk zone so shout out to them we're gonna watch it for a few minutes and then discuss what we've seen after that have a look what do you worship well, I don't really worship anything, but I, I do devote myself to the advancement of humanity uh, using technology. Do you pray? I don't. I didn't even pray when I when I almost died of malaria. Wow, that's really not praying. Right. So you put your money where your bug's prey was. Yeah. Do you have a spiritual life? Uh, well, it sort of depends on what spiritual means. Um, so what do you think spiritual means? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's certainly uh, things that we, we don't understand about the universe. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less convinced that there's, say, um, some, some super consciousness watching over our every movement and kind of evaluating it against some criteria, you know, and deciding whether we're going to go to one place or another when we die. Mm -hmm. I think that's unlikely. Right. I, I think that's very unlikely, too. Exactly. I mean, and, and, and it does beg the question, if there is some super consciousness, or consciousness where did the super consciousness come from? Um. Okay, so a few things said there. Um, he was asked, does he pray? He said no. He was asked, um, you know, are you spiritual? And he said, uh, depends what you mean by spiritual. And then he started talking about there are lots of things that we don't know about in the universe. And then he was asked, you know, do we have a super consciousness that's watching over us? He said, no, I think that's very unlikely. And uh, where did that super consciousness come from? I want to quickly start with a note on, I don't understand, this is a common trend I think I see in, in the West generally, which is when they kind of redefine spiritual to mean anything other than spiritual. Mm. So the whole idea of spiritual is spirit, right? Spirit yeah. is an unseen force, which a life force which animates us mm. and traditionally believed to live past death. Mm. And yet people who are arch materialists, people who believe that we are just our physical biology that we are going to you know die and that everything is accidental etc that there's no there's nothing inherent in us which is deeper uh there's no god they also try and claim a spiritual life just be honest like you don't believe in spirituality yeah you know meditation is not spirituality you know if you just turn your mind off that can't you can't just say if you don't believe in a soul you don't believe in a spirit it's not mm. spiritual that kind of grates against me anything that that either of you guys wanted to to, to comment on in what we've seen so far Going to music festivals also they call spiritual. <laughs> Any experience, walking in nature, anything can be a spiritual experience, can't yeah. it nowadays? Yeah, yeah. Um, except, you know, actually Pray. That's still pray. weird. That's still strange. <laughs> do you yeah, pray? No. <laughs> I found it interesting the very first question that was asked, what do you worship? And I think that's also an indication that we all inherently have a drive to worship something. Mm. And even if people don't worship God, they worship something, whether it's money. Most of the time, it's other people, like celebrities. Mm. I watched The Voice once, mm. and there was this <laughs> there was this one contestant who 
basically had pictures of Jesse J on his wall, had an alarm clock that woke up and it was Jesse J. You like, don't have, you don't have, I don't have that. <laughs> that was so normal in our house. It was like, you know, it was like, last more... time I'm going on the voice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the definition of worship really, isn't it? It's mm. like set up an almost a, a shrine or something, you yeah. know, to, yeah. to do these things. And I think a lot of people do have that. They have people, that they worship. And I think that comes from an instinctive need to worship. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to get it right as to who we're actually worshiping. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Quran kind of, you know, um, it kind of defines worship in the first chapter. The alone do we, do we worship, but the alone do we, uh, the alone do we implore for help. So that more defines actually who is our God. Actually, that, that's talking about who, who is our God? Who, what do we try and work towards? What do we ask for help? You know, those are the kind of qualities. And he he immediately answers that by saying, I work towards the advancement of humanity. So he's kind of set up his religion yeah. as being mm-hmm. the advancement of humanity of as course, he that's, sees it. That's a directionless, meaningless phrase. Mm-hmm. Advancement of humanity is I mean, I'm not one to go to Hitler metaphors immediately, <laughs> but it's it's expedient in this case. Hitler thought he was advancing mm. the cause of mankind by eradicating the what he saw yeah. as the lesser human beings. Yeah. The Untermenschen, mm. I think is the correct uh, phrase. So it's largely hollow, a mm. mere statement like that, the advancement of humanity. I mean, a- every villain who's ever existed in any comic book mm. have all been devoted, you know, mm. assiduously devoted to the advancement of mankind. I mean, Thanos famously was trying to yeah. uh, advance the universe, universe population uh, by halving them instead yeah. of doubling the food supply. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a plot fall there. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, absolutely right. So this is an advancement of, huma- of humanity doesn't give you any kind of direction of how to advance humanity. How should we, how should humanity live? Well, it's actually a description of what one hopes one will be conceived of after one's own death. Mm-hmm. It's it's a hope that one's desires mm-hmm. and what one finds interesting will be counted as one's legacy as a as a move in advancing humanity. Mm. Um, but in actual fact, it's just a an expression of uh, how one wishes to be seen. Mm. It's not an expression of a reality. And it's a purpose which he's kind of designed for himself. Yeah. On the basis of his, of his background, atheism, and I guess everyone has to kind of create mm-hmm. that that purpose and also i'm not talking about him specifically but a lot of people who say they want to advance humanity hmm. really want to make money themselves and actually what they're <laughs> worshiping is money you hmm. think you know would he do hmm. all of these things to advance humanity if he couldn't get super rich off them maybe he wouldn't yeah so maybe actually what he's worshiping is materialism and money and success and, and success we're yeah. gonna have a lot of elon musk fans commenting negatively <laughs> on this video i just realized <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't mean that specifically about him. Maybe he's completely set up to advance humanity. Maybe that's his only goal. But I think and he may, certainly, may well be sincere. But yeah, yeah. But other people, perhaps, and there's nothing wrong with making money while you do. No, that. there's not. But, there's not. But, but 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 I think your point is that what's the true purpose is sometimes yeah. obscure from an individual themselves as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um. He he then went on to speak about um the superconsciousness. So he says, you know, is this? Uh, they're trying to be polite. You know, I think the idea that there's a superconsciousness watching over us is unlikely. And then Musk then says, and it begs the question, where did the superconsciousness come from? Mm. So what do you guys make of that? You go. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's no different to coming across a watch on the floor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you come across a watch on the floor, you don't need to have to explain where the watch came from, mm. who dropped it, how they dropped it, where they live, and what the make of the watch was yeah. to be able to recognize that that's a watch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Those are all extraneous questions. The first question is, is there a watch on the floor? 
Yeah. Is there something that's complex and designed? Yeah. Which is the universe. Mm-hmm. Do I have to explain who owned the watch or who made the watch? No. Mm-hmm. They're completely separate questions. Yeah. Um, if you had to ask the question, where did the watchmaker come from? Where did God come from? Yeah. Well, that just gets into the Kalam cosmological argument, which is definitely favors the believer, just definitely favors the one who believes in God. Yeah. Because, you know, as we know, you necessarily uh, require through a chain of causality um, uh, an uncaused cause. Mm. You can't get a chain of causality. Which we have. Which we have without an uncaused cause, because yeah. otherwise you'd have an infinite regress and an infinite Nothing regress can never be traversed. So, simple. Right. So what you're saying there is that God is an eternal being as part of his makeup and there has to be an eternal being. So God is that eternal being that is required for everything else to exist. Yeah. So if you have a chain of cause and effect, yeah. going back to the Big Bang, which we have, and then we posit that there are other chains and causes and effects prior to the Big Bang, which led to the Big Bang. Hmm. Uh, if you just have chain of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect forever. Going backwards. Going backwards in time. Because you cannot you cannot traverse, you cannot complete an infinite series of events, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you would never be able to get from the beginning mm-hmm. of that chain of cause and effect because there would be no beginning of that chain of cause and effect because mm-hmm. it's infinite in the into the past. Mm. You'd never be able to get from that point to the present moment, to the present co- moment of cause and effect. Yeah. So th- it necessitates uh, that there is an uncaused cause, Mm. So the question, you know, where did the super consciousness come from is is completely meaningless because you're asking who caused the uncaused cause to begin. Well, yeah. by definition, the uncaused cause didn't have a beginning. Yeah. So what they're trying to do is they're anthropomorphizing God, which is what atheists do in pretty much a lot of their arguments. Mm. They apply the categ- they make category errors with respect to God. They apply the attributes of the universe or creation to God and then argue against God as if actually they're arguing against the existence of the universe. Okay. You know, in terms of the same attributes. So, you know, God is by definition an uncaused cause. The universe by definition is a cause, is, a, is an effect of a cause. Okay, so if you have a, a chain of dominoes which have fallen over, you need a finger to have set it off. Well, you need right? the first domino at the very least. You need the first domino and you need something to have, to have, to have you need that first one to have fallen. Yeah, right? so his, his, question, is, his, question, his question is uh, evidence. His question is an invalid question. Yeah. Because uh, he's... He's making a category error with respect to the superconsciousness as he refers to it. Yeah. I think also the fact that the universe is so well fine-tuned and the design and complexity is so beautiful, actually, that begs the question as to how did that mm. come to be? Yeah, That's actually the real question. And there's something that you say quite a lot to me, which is when you look at a painting, which is really beautiful, mm. we always think, well, who is it that actually painted it? You know, mm. we think about we think about that, but like the when painting we, of a landscape or something. Of a landscape, but when we look at the landscape itself, these atheists say, "Oh, it just came about by blind chance." Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a bit contradictory, and I think that's that's the real question that he omits. He goes straight to the who created God, whereas yeah. he should have thought about who created the universe. Very good point, and you know he's invoking the awe of the universe mm. in this video, and then the, and the video creator of this is he's using as so many of these kind of inspira- atheist inspiration videos do. Of, of these amazing structures in the universe and they're using that to bolster their claim that they came from accidental byproducts of nothingness and you know there's no explanation so, for so if you played a little bit more i think yeah that he he elaborates on his views on the fine tuning issue which i think is very important yeah, let's go for it so i think the most likely explanation is uh that uh 
complexity evolved from simplicity. You know, that the simple elements over time combined to become more complex and mm. arrived at what we are. Mm -hmm. um, That's okay. worth stopping there. Mm -hmm. Because that gets to exactly what you've just said about the fine-tuning. The problem with that is is that the universe is exquisitely fine-tuned at the moment of its inception in the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in a very low entropy state. The uh, expansion of the universe, for example, the... Um, well, the, the laws of nature. The laws of nature are exquisitely fine-tuned. Fine of, the, of, the, of the constants of those laws of nature. Yeah. There's a very low tolerance. If you change them even slightly, you have a universe where gravity is too strong, gravity is too weak, yeah. you know, etc., etc., you won't form the kind of universe that we have that is stable, that persists, and that leads to the formation of galaxies, solar systems, and uh, terrestrial land that can actually harbor chemistry. And biology comes from that chemistry. You just have, say, let's say, helium and hydrogen for a while, and then it would uh, stop existing. Or a good example is I've just been listening to the book by um, called Just Six Numbers mm -hmm. by, uh, who's that author? Martin Rees. Martin Rees, yeah, he re he reads it as well. It's a really good audiobook to listen to, and he's an atheist. So look, I don't want to, you know, put words in his mouth, but yeah. he's the one who wrote, writes this fantastic book about the fine tuning of the universe. And mm -hmm. for example, he he talks about how um, the forces of the cosmological constant, for example, which determines the uh, it's a kind of an anti gravity. It's a potentially an anti gravity force that has, has enables the expansion of the universe, yeah. and how it's balanced against gravity. And how that balance is fundamentally important because if the cosmological constant was 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 much stronger than it is, then it would mean that uh, gravity would never have been able to coalesce matter into the sun, into planets, and therefore you'd never even get a possible chance at life because matter would be spread so thinly because of the speed of expansion. And then if, if, if the gravity was too strong in comparison to the cosmological constant, you'd have had expansion and immediate collapse, and so you'd never get expansion of the universe. Right. And he compares it beautifully to sitting at the bottom of a well and throwing a stone from the bottom of the well um, so that it just reaches the tip of the well and then falls back <laughs> down. In other words, it opposes gravity to the perfect amount That's and a brilliant falls, metaphor. falls back down. Uh, he gives loads of these examples. For example, the, the, the strong nuclear force, you know, mm. the, 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 the attraction between the repulsion between two protons, for example, and what that means for the how quickly hydrogen was burned in the universe or is burning in the universe mm. and that if it was too weak hydrogen would all if it was of one particular type i can't remember the exact details but if it was along one particular track yeah you know hydrogen would have all been burnt out into helium and therefore you'd no ha have no uh, uh hydrogen left in the universe and you shouldn't have no active suns etc yeah um but if it was uh, of uh, on the other extreme it would be such that highly hydrogen would never burn through properly to helium and so you'd never get higher elements yeah yeah so then you just have a, a uh, an empty universe filled with suns but no planets and no chemistry mm. so so what you're saying is Elon musk is saying that complexity came from simplicity but what you're saying is actually those complex laws were already in operation even at the beginning yeah yeah mm. so the complexity is embedded mm. um yeah but even the even the question of i mean natural laws I mean, what do you make of the term? I love this topic. This is mm. one of my favorite topics to discuss with atheists. Mm. And what do you make of the term natural laws? If you ask an atheist, well, mm. you know, where did this come from? They say it's operated by the laws of nature. Yeah. You know, what would you, how would you, what would you say to that? Because that's kind of what he's saying, that these are na natural processes yeah. operating under natural laws. So he's saying com simplicity, complexity, presumably under some naturalistic law-like process. That is argument, of course. Yeah. Simplicity comes from, complexity comes from simplicity because the laws of nature operate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're evoking laws of nature as being that uncaused cause. 
and I guess they're saying, you know, that in reality, those laws of nature also need a lawgiver. There needs yeah. to be somebody that actually put those laws of nature into operation. Yeah. I mean, that, that's absolutely right. A law, the, the idea of a law of nature is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that was applied uh, from the human realm. I mean, we have laws. We have laws mm-hmm. which are passed, which are written by a government and then enforced. And if you have a very civilized society, they are following their laws to a high degree of fidelity, right? But there'll still be some criminals because some people will still disobey the laws. When you have a universe which is following the laws perfectly, and these laws are what we infer from the mathematical, you know, we can describe the behavior of the most fundamental particles in certain mathematical ways. So there are these laws, there are these, there are these written codes of how the citizens of the universe, the atoms and their subatomic particles are supposed to behave. And they are behaving in them in a perfect manner throughout time and separated by, you know, eons of, of or, you know, by you know, light years in space. They all behave in the same way according to the same laws. Now, what that should tell us is that, yes, there is a lawgiver, and also that these laws are enforced to the highest degree, that there is not a single criminal amongst them, right? <laughs> mm. uh, and how does that make sense, except outside of a theistic um, framework? A theistic framework is the only way you can understand that there is actually a mind who has created these laws and also enforces it through a universal government, you know, to a much greater degree than, than we can in human societies. But atheists always invoke these laws of nature as if it's on their side. It's like, no, the whole metaphor doesn't even work <laughs> unless you include God. Yeah, I, I think there's a, uh, there's a another subtle point here, which is that, which you've both touched on, which is that a law of nature is a description of the operation of, is a, a law of nature is a term we use to describe the behavior of, of particles. Yeah. In effect. Um, and... We derive the laws of nature from the observation of particles or the mathematical constructs that we derive yeah. from the observations of particles. Yeah. Okay, so we're effectively describing behavior mm-hmm. and calling it a law. Mm-hmm. But then, when you ask somebody, "Well, why is it behaving in that way?" they say, "Oh, it's following the law of nature." Mm-hmm. And the question is, "Well, which is it?" <laughs> if you say, "Well, why is the proton repelling the electron?" Yeah. Say it's because of the law of nature. Okay, okay, okay. The law of nature. Right. Okay. But I thought that the law of nature we derive from looking at it like that. Yeah. Yes, that's true as well. Okay. So then why is it behaving like that? Hmm. How could the law of nature be describing the behavior, but also the law of nature is determining the behavior? So is it just descriptive or is it prescriptive? Yeah. Is it saying you have to be like this or is it saying it just is like this? All we're doing is we're describing a behavior. We're not explaining. These laws of nature don't explain why things behave in that particular way. Oh, I see what you mean. They, ca- okay. they cannot. So all science can do is, is is provide that description. Yeah, it cannot say, but it doesn't solve the mystery. Of it doesn't why solve it the mystery of why it's behaving in that way. There's no power. The, yeah. the mathematical equation has no power to actually enforce. It's itself. just a description, mm. and so it's completely. Uh, it has zero explanatory power. Yeah, yeah. Zero explanatory power as to power why they're being followed. As to why it is behaving like that. Right, right, right. There's no explanatory power there, so they're taking a, a, a description and attributing to it causal ability. Yeah, yeah. And this is beautifully summed up in the Quran in this wonderful, amazing verse, mm. which people just walk on by, mm. right? There's this verse in the Quran which says, describes the disbelievers, and it says, you know, non believers, they say, it says, and if they would see the sky falling down upon them, <laughs> they would simply say, clouds piled up, <laughs> right? That's a, an amazing statement because mm. it's like they would see a punishment falling upon them. Yeah. Okay. Of some description, asteroid, meteor, whatever. Yeah. Okay. 
And all they would be able to do is to describe it. Yeah. It's clouds yeah. piled up. They wouldn't be able to get to the heart of, hold on, well, why is this happening to us? Yeah, yeah. Because the question of why it's happening is actually pertinent to how to get out of the situation or to understand something. Hmm. Yeah. This is the first part in a serialization of the book Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth caliph of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. I will begin by raising two fundamental questions. What are the modern challenges? And what modern situation can any religion address? These are the fundamental questions. An absence of peace. The single most important malady of the world today is the absence of peace. In the contemporary world, man as a whole has reached a high standard of achievement in material progress. Made possible by the advancement of science and technology in every sphere of human requirement at a mind-boggling pace. No doubt the more fortunate sections of human society, known as the first and second world, have a much larger share of the fruits of scientific progress in the contemporary age. But the third world has also benefited to a degree. Rays of progress have penetrated even the innermost recesses of the darkest areas, where a section of human society still lives in a remote past. Nevertheless, man is not happy and content. There is growing restlessness, fear, premonition, lack of trust in the future and dissatisfaction with one's heritage. These are some of the important elements which challenge the nature of the contemporary world. It, in turn, gives birth to a deep-seated dissatisfaction of man, either with his past or with his present. Particularly, it runs deep in the formative thought processes of the younger generation. Man is in search of peace. Islam's Contribution to World Peace The word Islam literally means peace. In this single word, all Islamic teachings and attitudes are most beautifully and concisely reflected. Islam is a religion of peace. Its teachings guarantee peace in every sphere of human interest and aspiration. Today, I have categorized some areas in which the contemporary world stands in need of guidance. Firstly, interreligious peace and harmony, social peace in general, socio-economic peace, economic peace, peace in national and international politics, and individual peace. Verily we have sent thee with the truth, as a bearer of glad tidings 
and as a warner, and there is no people on earth in any age who did not receive a warner from God. The Holy Quran, chapter 35, verse 25. Surely those who have believed in Muhammad as a messenger of God, and the Jews, and the Sabians, and the Christians, whoso believes in Allah and the last day, and does good deeds, on them shall come no fear, nor shall they grieve. The Holy Quran, chapter 5, verse 70. Interreligious Peace Examining the overall religious scenario, one cannot fail to notice that in religion there seems to prevail a paradoxical situation today. In general, religion is losing its grip, yet simultaneously tightening it in different areas. In some sections of society, in almost all religions, there seems to be a powerful swing back in the direction of dogmas with medieval rigidity and intolerance of opposition. On the moral side, religion is on the retreat. Crime is rampant. Truth is disappearing fast. Equity and the deliverance of justice are on the verge of extinction. Social responsibilities to the society are being ignored and a selfish individualism is gaining strength in its stead, even in such countries of the world as would otherwise claim to be religious. These, and many other social evils, which are positive signs of a morally decadent society, have become the order of the day. If moral values in any religion form the life and soul of the religion itself, then a progressive strangulation of these values can lead us to the inevitable conclusion that while the body of religion is being resurrected, the soul is fast ebbing out of the body. So what we observe in religion today, the so-called revival of religion, becomes tantamount to resurrecting dead corpses so that they walk about like zombies. In other areas, Long stagnation and a lack of exciting developments generates boredom among religiously inclined people. Miraculous things which they expect to happen do not take place. The bizarre phenomenon of supernatural intervention in world events to change the world to their liking does not materialise. They want to see strange prophecies fulfilled to give credence to their faith yet nothing materialises. Such are the people who provide fodder for new cults, which thrive on the hummus of their frustrations. The urge to escape from the past generates a desire to fill the void with something new. Apart from these destructive trends, another extremely disturbing phenomenon, which perhaps is related to the revival of dogmas in religion, is threatening the peace of the world. With the rise of such dogmas, a toxic atmosphere is generated which proves fatal to the healthy spirit of dialogue and free flow of ideas. As if this were not enough, willful attempts by unscrupulous politicians, ever ready to exploit volatile situations to their own advantage, are being made to tarnish the image of religion itself. Again, 
historic interreligious rivalries and feuds have their part to play. In addition, the so-called free media is generally controlled by unseen hands rather than being at liberty to play a completely neutral role in the affairs of the world. Therefore, when the media of a country with a predominant population belonging to one religion joins the battle in maligning the image of a rival religion, the scenario becomes very complex. The first victim of this melee is, undoubtedly, religion itself. There is a deep urgency for religions to make a genuine and serious effort to remove misunderstanding between them. I believe that Islam can deliver the goods with distinction in a manner that can fully satisfy our demands and requirements. To facilitate a better understanding, I have further categorised the subject into different sections. For instance, I believe that for a religion to be helpful in establishing peace in the world, it is essential that a religion which is universally capable of uniting man ultimately must itself accept the universality of religion in the sense that human beings, whatever their colour, race or geographic denomination, are all creatures of the same creator. As such, they are equally entitled to receive divine instruction if ever divine instructions were given to any section of human society. This view obviates the concept of monopolization of truth by any religion. All religions, whatever their name or doctrines, wherever they be found and to whichever age they belong, have the right to claim the possession of some divine truth. Also, one has to admit that despite the differences in their doctrines and teachings, religions are most likely to have a common origin. The same divine authority which gave birth to any religion in one area of the world must also have looked after the religious and spiritual needs of other human beings in other parts of the world and belonging to different ages. This exactly is the message of the Holy Quran, the sacred scripture of Islam. Universality of Prophethood the Holy Quran has the following to say in this regard. We did raise among every people a messenger with the teaching, worship Allah and shun the evil one. Secondly, the Holy Quran declares that, O Prophet of God, you are not the only Prophet in the world. We indeed sent messengers before thee, of them are some whom we have mentioned to thee, and of them are some we have not mentioned to thee. The Holy Quran reminds the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. Thou art but a warner. Verily, we have sent thee with the truth as a bearer of glad tidings, and as a warner, and there is no people to whom a warner has not been sent. In view of the above, it is manifestly clear that Islam does not monopolize truth to the elimination of all other religions, but categorically declares that in all ages and in all parts of the world, God has been looking after the spiritual and religious needs of mankind by raising messengers who delivered the divine message to the people for whom they were raised and commissioned. <laughs> thinking to myself,
know. This all sounds so compelling. I think I need to be a part of this. So I'm walking down the street and I'm thinking to myself, all right, Hamza, you're a regular guy. You know what I'm saying? Think banker, walk street, little bit of showboating and grandstanding. You know what I'm saying? Not a bad looking cat. I'm a eye. You know what I mean? Love the ladies. Love my drinking. Love having fun. This whole Islam thing, quite foreign to me. You know what I'm saying? Like I grew up in a Christian background, but I wasn't really religious myself. So I'm thinking to myself, Hamza, you have now just become a Muslim tonight. Is this really where you want to go? I mean, this whole thing is full of rules and regulation. These people get up in the middle of the night for prayers and then they do it four times at other parts of the day. It sounds like a lot of hand holding and a lot of laws. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm not really sure if I did the right thing here. So as I'm walking down the street, I'm comparing it to all of the beautiful things that I read about Islam, about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, this all sounds so compelling. I think I need to be a part of this on the one hand. On the other hand, I mean, what if this stuff is just true? What if this is just like one of the many isms that people get themselves into because of boredom or whatever else they're going through? So right at that moment, I thought to myself, you know what? I looked up at the stars and I said, oh God, if this man is true, please help me understand it, but don't let me be a hypocrite. And I thought to myself, you know, hopefully maybe I just need to read more, just investigate. So I went home. It was late. It was the middle of the night. I thought to myself, you know what? Let me at least take a step. I'll go ahead and try to get up for that early morning prayer. It's like four or five in the morning. Like I said to y'all before, you know, we come home at four or five, but we ain't getting up at no four or five. Unless you got to go to the bathroom or something. But anyway, so I stretch out on the couch and I thought to myself, all right, I'll try to get up for that early morning prayer. So I lay out and before I know it, man, I hear the sound like the sound of a plane when it when it flies too low, combined with like, a train. It was like this roaring sound, but it's a voice. And the voice said, number one, preach. There is none worthy of worship save Allah. Number two, preach. There is none worthy of worship save Allah. And it just kept repeating like, like, like vibrations in a tuning fork. That's the best way I can explain it. It was like, I became a tuning fork because someone knocked me on the edge of a table and I just sat there vibrating. Man, I was so taken out. I was so emotionally shaken. I just like, I got up, I'm crying, my nose is running. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what has just happened to me? You know, I called up a friend of mine and he's like, don't worry, this happens to people all the time. And then it wasn't until much later, I continued to study, etc. And then I began to realize there are Amity Muslims all over the world that have experiences just like this and even greater experiences. And that's when I realized that verse of the Holy Quran, where God himself says, Udu'uni astajib lakum. Pray unto me, I will answer your prayer. You see, for me, this is the reason why I couldn't be anything other than a Muslim. Not because there's a distance between God and man, 
But because Islam closes that gap, and in fact, true Islam, Ahmadiyyad, reunites human beings because it possesses the correct understanding of the guidance given by God to man, so that man has that relationship with God. Now, anybody can see it any way they want to see it. I agree. Perhaps it's all subjective. But I can tell you one thing. For me, and for the millions of stories that I hear from Amity's all over the world, I couldn't be anything else. These are the signs of the living God. Udu'uni astajib lakum. Pray unto me. I will answer your prayer.